0: This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, the Institute of International
1: and European Affairs. Join the discussion on IIEA.com and access our engaging videos, blogs and podcasts. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, You're most welcome to this webinar uh, from the IIEA this afternoon. Uh, I have to say that we have had uh, many hundreds of webinars and meetings in the IIEA particularly webinars over the past two years, but uh, I don't think any of us could have imagined that we would be having a webinar uh, on the uh, war in Ukraine and is this the end of the long peace in Europe, which is the title of today's talk. Even as uh, as late as two or three months ago, uh, this would have been unthinkable. But we are here today and uh, we're very grateful to be joined by three speakers who will talk to us and inform us uh, from the basis of their considerable knowledge on the topic. Uh, The speakers are Judy Dempsey, Senior Fellow at Carnegie Europe, uh, Ben Tonner, Professor of International Relations at uh, the UCD School of Politics and International Relations, and Professor Donico Biakon, Professor of Politics at the School of Law and Government at Dublin City University. Uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the largest combined arms operation uh, to take place in Europe since the Second World War and a watershed moment in modern European history. It prompts questions uh, which we will look at today, whether Europe is exiting the long peace and entering a more turbulent epoch. Uh, This conflict has led EU member states uh, such as Germany to review national positions on defense uh, and also member states who traditionally non-aligned states are evaluating their own status in the new geopolitical landscape. All of this we will in, investigate uh, in the next hour or so. Uh, just some of the administrative um, uh, details for the talk. Uh, you'll be able to join the discussion and q uh, Q&A function on Zoom, which you should see on your screen. And please feel free to put your questions in in the course of the session as they occur to you and we will come to them once our speakers have finished their presentation. And a reminder that both the Q&A and the presentations are on the record. And also, of course, as usual, please feel free to uh, join the discussion on Twitter using the handle at IIEA. Uh, Let me now formally introduce our speakers uh, in the order of which they will um, deliver their address, which is going from the wider scope of the uh, Russia and the former Soviet Union uh, through to the uh, EU in Germany in particular with Judy and then uh, then, uh, we'll talk about Europe, EU and, and Ireland. Uh, I have CVs here that if I were to go into them properly, would take a good 20 minutes, so I will have to um, have to give uh, a shorter version, but believe me uh, there, there is a lot more. Um, Professor Donico Biakon is Professor of Politics, as I mentioned in the School of Law and Government and uh, where he lectures on post-Soviet politics, unrecognized states, Irish studies, and foreign policy. And he's conducted research in all 15 former Soviet republics and lectured as a visiting professor Region including Georgia, Russia, Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan. And he has also been principal investigator of two EU funded projects focusing on post-Soviet space. Uh, collectively valued at 7.5 million and he has been awarded many accolades champion of European research uh, and and a number of other accolades and uh, his books relate to the color revolutions uh, in the post-soviet region and a number of other publications. Uh, Judy Dempsey who was uh, no stranger to the IIEA, and we're always so pleased to see you back Judy uh, has a uh, huge experience in this area. Uh, She's a non-resident fellow at Carnegie Europe and editor-in-chief of the Strategic Europe blog, uh, which has a huge number of followers, I know. She's author of the book of the Merkel phenomenon, and she worked for the International Herald Tribune from 2004. as its Germany and East Europe correspondent and uh, as columnist later. She was diplomatic correspondent of the Financial Times in Brussels from 2001 onward, covering NATO and European Union enlargement. And she served as Jerusalem Bureau Chief uh, and European correspondent in London, East European correspondent in London for the Financial Times. Uh, She has contributed to several books on Eastern Europe. Uh, including developments in Central and Eastern Europe and uh, Ben of course is also um, very well known to the Institute and uh, uh, a great contributor to the work of the Institute uh, through security and defence discussions in the Institute. He's a full Professor of International Relations at UCD School of Politics and international relations. And at UCD, he teaches, researches and publishes in European foreign security and defense policy, Irish foreign security and defense policy and international relations theory. Uh, he's a member of the Royal Irish Academy and has served as the chair of the Academy's Standing Committee on International Relations. He's a distinguished fellow at the Asia Forum, a Dublin-based think tank on security, Defence and cyber defence, where it has really come to the fore. He previously worked in the Department of International Politics in the University of Wales, the University of Dublin, and the Centre for Strategic and International Relations in Studies in Washington. Ben, you're very welcome uh, again, as are all our speakers. Uh, we will start off then, without further ado. So, if I could uh, introduce um, Professor Donica biakon to give us the benefit of your considerable experience of the area, which is under such uh, uh, undergoing such violence at the moment. Um, Donica, the floor is yours.
2: Uh, thank you, Marie, and uh, thank you to the organisers for putting together this this event. It's it's very hard to talk about Ukraine uh, at this time. It's it's a very fluid uh, situation, and it's to be frank, emotionally exhausting to think about it, to talk about it. Uh, like many of you, I'm I'm still in a state of shock, trying to digest the enormity and brutality of what has happened uh, during these last few weeks in Ukraine. Um, I first started living in the in the former Soviet Union more than two decades ago now and uh, have been researching and visiting Ukraine during that time. And never in my darkest nightmares did I suspect the, the calamity that awaited uh, people there. In fact, actually, Ben Tonner and I, uh, only six weeks ago, both jointly uh, addressed the Iraqis Committee on, on European Union Affairs. And we went through many different scenarios. But again, uh, we didn't uh, anticipate uh, such barbarity being inflicted upon the people of Ukraine uh, in such a short space of time. Uh, given that I'm the first speaker, um, I thought I'd use my seven minutes or so to outline the basics and hopefully set the context for what will hopefully be a very fruitful discussion. And and that is essentially to focus on what this war is about um, and what it's not about. And to give you, I guess, a spoiler alert, most of what it's not about is what the Kremlin says it is. Uh, but to start with what it's um, not about, it's it's not about liberation. Uh, Ukraine is a sovereign democracy. This is about occupation. It's about subordination. It's it's not about genocide of Russians in Ukraine. Uh, we are now witnessing, as you know, the mass murder of Ukrainians by the Kremlin. It's it's not about protecting Russian speakers, the vast majority of whom are hostile uh, to the Kremlin's intervention. It's not about Nazism and denazification, as you know, Volodymyr Zelensky, the uh, president of Ukraine, uh, is, is Jewish. In fact, when he was elected in 2019, uh, the Prime Minister of Ukraine was also Jewish. It was, in fact, the only country outside of Israel that had a Jewish prime minister and a Jewish president. There was a 450-seat parliament, and not a single member was elected under the party list system uh, for a far-right party, Uh, whereas Vladimir Putin, of course, by contrast, has been been supporting uh, within the European Union far-right movements uh, for many years. Um, It's not about ensuring that Ukraine is neutral. or or demilitarized. Uh, As many of your uh, listeners will be aware, in 1994, uh, Ukraine had nuclear weapons, which it voluntarily gave up as part of this Budapest memorandum. It had the third largest arsenal actually in the world, which it inherited from the Soviet uh, stockpile. And uh, it gave those nuclear weapons up in return for security guarantees from the Russian Federation, from the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, And indeed, it was militarily non-aligned and demilitarised more or less when in 2014 its territory was invaded and occupied so being neutral being militarily non-aligned being demilitarized has not saved ukraine from invasion and occupation and it's 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 a complete canard to suggest that this is what is behind uh, the current uh, russian invasion of ukraine it's not about nato moving eastwards um which is, of course, uh, a large, again, part of the the, the Kremlin narrative. This is about countries in the region, in Central and Eastern Europe, moving westwards. Uh, Countries which are sovereign, democratic governments uh, making a choice. Uh, The EU and NATO acquires new members by invitation, uh, whereas we know the Kremlin expands uh, by invasion, as is happening now. Uh, It's not about a Western puppet government, as it's portrayed in Moscow, um, you know, trying to force a reluctant population to join NATO or the EU. In fact, because of Kremlin aggression, Ukrainians have become ever more convinced of the necessity of joining these organisations, and that's something that I've myself noticed over many years, the, the shift uh, towards joining NATO and EU uh, as a result of Kremlin aggression in Ukraine. Uh, and this is not about Ukraine being a threat to Russia, but it is about Russia being a threat uh, to Ukraine. So what is this war about? Uh, It's about destroying a country, Ukraine, and dominating what remains of it. It's about destroying a people. Putin, of course, is on record uh, in his writings and in his public pronouncements as saying that Ukrainians essentially don't exist, that they're the same people uh, as Russians, uh, that Ukraine is somehow uh, populated by some kind of uh, political Frankenstein, uh, which is uh, stitched together during Soviet times and sustained by its adversaries. Um, This conflict is about empire. It's about making russia great again and that greatness uh, is depending upon the subordination of of russia's neighbors uh, in that sense the kremlin doesn't recognize international borders it, it has uh, blurred margins uh this war is about regime change it's about replacing a democratically elected government with a pliant puppet it's uh essentially the kremlin trying to uh, make the neighborhood in its own image uh through supporting Uh, Kin states, Uh, we saw for example how uh, Russia rushed to the aid of the dictatorship in Kazakhstan only two months ago when it was under threat from its own people. Establishing rival institutions based largely on dictatorships to rival the EU and NATO such as the Eurasian Economic Union and the Collective Security Treaty Organization. Uh, In fact, I only saw yesterday that uh, there was presidential elections in Turkmenistan, which is a hereditary dictatorship where power has now been passed from uh, a dictator to his son. And uh, the Russian media reported that there were no violations uh, in in that election, whereas we're supposed to believe that Turkmenistan is a a democracy, uh, Ukraine is not. And this is again about creating a world uh, which is 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 made up of the Kremlin and kindred uh, states. So this is fundamentally about dictatorship versus democracy, which is why it's not just Ukraine's war. uh, It's our struggle uh, as well uh, as members of the European Union, uh, as Democrats, as anti imperialists. Uh, dictatorships when they go to war it's 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 somewhat different when than when democracies go to war um, democracies have gone to war and lost the regimes usually survive because they have a degree of democratic legitimacy domestically uh, dictatorships because they rely on the uh monopoly of, of of coercive force um they risk everything uh when they when they go to war and this is one of the reasons why uh when we look at at what's happening now in ukraine we risk seeing ever greater depths of depravity uh as putin has wagered everything on a military victory in ukraine and he knows that he's his his regime and indeed perhaps his life depends on on winning um, now while nato is in the spotlight it's obvious that vladimir putin is equally obsessed with ukraine's uh prospective eu membership indeed eu membership is arguably a bigger threat as it brings the prospect of a prosperous and peaceful ukraine that would be a beacon Uh, For Russians, and in fact, it shouldn't be forgotten that it was Ukraine's efforts to get closer to the European Union, not to NATO, which in 2013 triggered part one of this two part tragedy, uh, which we're seeing playing out uh, at the moment. And uh, I might conclude by saying that this is the latest chapter in what is a a rather long story as a a historian, I tend to take the the, the long view of things and the Kremlin, as you know, quashed the Hungarians in 1956, uh, the Czechs and the Slovaks in 1968 when they tried to reform. Uh, the poles, of course, were suppressed throughout the 1980s. All these nations are now in the European Union and, and NATO. 14 of NATO's 30 members have joined since the end of the Cold War. 16 of the European Union's 27 members uh, have joined during the same period. And this is because it was their choice as sovereign democracies to escape the abusive, abusive cycle of history imposed upon them by the Kremlin, and this is Ukraine's choice today as well. This is why we have this murderous war against the Ukrainian people, and this is why we must try to do as much as we can to help the people of Ukraine uh, in their hour uh, of need. So I'll, I'll conclude on that note and thank you again, the organizers, for for putting together this event. I look forward to hearing the other contributions and receiving questions from the audience.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Donika. That's a um, uh, very comprehensive and uh um full of insight view on on the the reasoning uh behind the russian uh the russian attack uh, and a very good background so thank you now may i turn to judy uh judy you're very welcome uh you you are in berlin which of course is hugely affected both from a foreign policy a military policy and a refugee uh, situation with regard to this conflict so the floor is yours judy put on my timer. Uh, thank you very much,
0: Marie, for your kind words. Thank you, uh, everybody from the IEA and especially the technical staff and all the people who put this program together. Uh, I have to congratulate Donna for a super, super lecture in such a, in such a short space of time. Thank you. So um, I'm going to um, really look at Germany and the huge implications for Europe uh, for the transatlantic relationship for Eastern Europe and Russia. And um, one brief introduction, which I think has to be said about German foreign policy, that German poli- foreign policy over the years has been reactive. Uh, German foreign policy over the years has tended to be sitting on the fence, not quite taking a very clear view with Eastern European neighbors, meaning the countries that Donika was talking about, about Georgia, about Ukraine, about Belarus, about Armenia, about Azerbaijan, about Kazakhstan. And in many ways, uh, the German political elite and the establishment, for many reasons, looked at this region through the prism of Russia. And any policies, any long-term strategy towards the region was actually, how would Russia react? Or, well, our priority in any case is Russia. And this very special relationship with Russia, partly it's because of the Second World War, partly because it's very, very long historic relationship. But essentially, it goes down to the deep seated belief started in the late 1960s and 1970s in Detente that if we reach out to Russia, this was the West Germany at the time, if we reach out to the former Soviet Union, we will slowly, slowly make it closer to Europe. But above all, what the German establishment wanted was predictability and stability. And this is when they built a huge gas pipeline. The first one between West Germany and the Soviet Union, and the Americans were not happy about this. This was as with Germany going it alone on its energy policy, on its political policy, on its economic and trade policy with Russia. We are now, of course, are paying the price because of the Nord Stream pipeline. And this, this idea of, of um, change to trade or change through coming together. Uh, it persisted, even during the Merkel era. Um, although Merkel was very skeptical about uh, Putin and, and his promises, and he broke her, his, her, his promises to Merkel in 2014 when she asked him directly, are you going to invade Ukraine, uh, Crimea, Ukraine? And he said, no, that was the end of it. But nevertheless, Merkel stuck to this view of, of not wanting to absolutely antagonize Russia, even though she did lead the EU to impose the sanctions after the illegal annexation of Crimea and the invasion of Eastern Ukraine. But she never broke up off Nord Stream 2. And in some ways, Merkel did see Eastern Europe also through that traditional view through the prism of Russia. And so, after a long time in power, uh, Merkel gave up and she was uh, succeeded by uh, the Social Democrat Olaf Scholz. And he took over in early December and he really didn't say anything. We didn't know where he stood on so many things. Some say, oh, well, you know, government takes a while. He's been in the, the Ministry, the Finance Ministry for years anyway. He's no he's no um, he's no novice. And then he went off to Moscow after Macron and he was subject to this long, long table. Uh, the reason is that um, Like Macron, he refused to get tested by a Russian doctor for for Covid. He didn't want his DNA to be locked away in the Kremlin. Anyway, he got the long table treatment and I think that visit changed him. He came back to Berlin and a few days later, from the Thursday to the Sunday, he held non-stop meetings with the various ministers, with the finance minister, with the um, foreign minister, with, 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 with the three-part coalition. And that Sunday, the st- special meeting of the Bundestag called because of the Russian attack on Ukraine, he stood up, gave a 35-minute speech, and threw away the German rule book. threw away the old German belief in diplomacy, threw away, the old belief that we can do business with Russia. And he actually created a new German policy, a Zeitwende, a change of the time. Briefly, he um, just threw, threw 100 billion euros at the army to get, you know, basically like German underwear now that are up in the Baltic states because they are so underfunded and so badly managed he actually increased the defense spending to meet the NATO targets to 2% of GDP, that's about 100 billion euros. Three, he reinforced the transatlantic relationship big time. Fourth, he actually did marginalize radically uh, the anti-American and the pacifist and the pro the never under message the, the deep pro Russian lobby inside the social democratic party. And above all, he ended this special relationship with Russia. The, if he sticks to this, and it's very difficult to see him going back seeing, since, he, since he committed to this financially and politically, the implications are huge. First of all, uh, after already stopping Nord Stream 2 under pressure from the US administration, this is going to be a sea change in European and East European politics. The war changes everything. And the war, because of the war and Russia's war against Ukraine, it just fundamentally changed Germany's relationship with Russia. Putin has actually destroyed his closest European friend country inside the European Union. It's an astonishing um, an astonishing strategic long-term mistake and there will be no going back to it. This is the first thing. Secondly, because of this, Germany will take its eastern European neighbours much more seriously. They will be heavily involved when all this terrible tragedy is over in rebuilding Ukraine and taking a very different view of how to deal politically with the civil society, with the whole idea of economic recovery in these countries. And it's, it's a debate which we could have later. Germany, for the moment, is on board that a lot of these countries, Moldova, Georgia, and Ukraine, they have put their hats in the ring for, for joining, for joining uh, the EU. Um, we'll have to see how this debate goes. The, the other point is that, um, Germany's position is going to rapidly improve its relations within the EU, especially with the Central European countries. They were highly skeptical, even angry, that Germany held on to Nord Stream because they believed that the old suspicions, the old belief that Germany was doing a deal behind their backs, and it wasn't any idea about solidarity or European diversification of energy. And so we have now a new Germany, a chancellor that is, has broken away the old links. And the Chancellor that actually wants to use this change to try to redefine the transatlantic relationship, because America is not going to stay in Europe, and also redefine what role Germany can now play as a serious committed partner inside the European Union. We have It's going to be an astonishing period. It, it already is. But so much now will, will, will depend on how this awful war will end. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Judy, that's that's um, tremendously important for us uh, to get an insight into uh, what was, I think, for all of us uh, an astonishing vendor or turnabout in German policy, uh, particularly from a chancellor that uh, uh, one hadn't expected uh, such a huge uh, foreign policy change. And and as you said, the implications are huge uh, for for Germany, obviously, for Europe and uh, including for Ireland. So I'll turn now to Ben. Ben, how do you assess uh, what's happening for Europe, for Ireland, and your views uh, uh, as a foreign policy expert in, in this incredible, um, uh, these incredible events that have hit us uh, so suddenly?
3: Thanks, Marion, and, and thanks to the team at the IIIA. um First, I've got two reflections and three substantive points. First, two reflections on the title of today's seminar. Is this the end of a long peace in Europe? My obvious reflection is what long peace? Yugoslavia, Bosnia, Georgia, Crimea, Libya, Syria, Moldova, Chechnya, Caucasus. Europe has been engaged in wars for some time now. The end of the long peace has been long foretold. Europe didn't listen, didn't hear it, or perhaps chose to delude itself. In particular, we owe owe sincere and abject apologies to colleagues in the Baltics and in Poland and elsewhere in Central Eastern Europe who warned us of this, who told us that this was dominant thinking in Russia. In any event, this is the largest scale and most egregious signal that that long peace, whatever it was, is no more. My second reflection is that this goes well beyond Europe. This is a full frontal assault from a nuclear armed state on the post-war settlement, not the Cold War settlement, which Putin is on record as regretting, but the settlement after the Second World War. This is an assault on the UN system, international law, and the norms that we have drawn unto ourselves to shield us from the worst successes of international anarchy. The lessons that China and the rest of the world draw from this conflict and its ultimate resolution will define the coming era. My three substantive points relate to narrative on Europe's response and Ireland's choices. In terms of narrative, I think we're at a very, very dangerous inflection point. Thus far, thus far, Russia has been unsuccessful in framing this as a West versus the rest conflict. This is not about the West with its obvious colonial, ideological and cultural baggage. This is about defending deep principles and practice of international law, governance and norms that restrain the tides of rampant violence and the logic of war. At the same time, those defending that rule of law must first be careful in their framing of the conflict because many outside Europe do see double standards at play here. My second substantive response is in terms of of Europe's response to this conflict. Bobby McDonough, who I think is is somewhere on 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 the call here, wrote a wonderful book talking about EU symmetry and EU treaty change in which he said some of the sounds that you never hear coming out of Brussels are Rubicons being crossed, decisive steps and knocking heads together. Well, Europe truly has changed. Europe has turned on a dime. What Judy says in respect of Germany's response and vote applies to this European Union of ours. Everything appears to be now on the table. There is tremendous momentum here. And this may be, and others are writing on this already, this may be the third of our Hamiltonian moments in the European Union alongside the financial crisis, the pandemic and now war. I think in terms of this response, another thing I would say is is we are extraordinarily lucky that we have the US president that we have. Were Europe to be facing this crisis in the hands of Donald Trump or any of his many doppelgangers on the US right, Europe would be tragically, dangerously, and critically exposed. But we have elections in about 30 months' time in the United States. So therefore, whatever Europe's response is must be reflective of the fact that Europe may have to stand alone at that point. My final substantive point is in terms of the outcome. There are multiple scenarios we face. Occupation and a bitter counterinsurgency war, ceasefire and standoff, potentially even the implosion of the Russian Federation. Predicting that is way above my pay grade. All I can say, all I will say is that Ireland has choices to make here. The old sureties, the old assumptions no longer apply any more in Ukraine than in Germany, than in the Baltic States than they do here. We have to seriously sit down and revisit the shibboleths and the myths that we have told ourselves, to address our place in Europe and make fundamental decisions. And I am, I am entirely agnostic on which way those decisions go, but there are costs and consequences for each and we need to talk about them. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Ben. Uh, that's a very good outline of, um, of the choices uh, and, and, um, and the possibilities and uh, what we need to do as well as, as the European Union and your comments on the EU. Uh, the Hamiltonian moment uh, are are very relevant. I have needless to say several questions. I have one first uh, I think probably for Danica and then uh, another one for both uh, Judy and Ben. Uh, Danica, I have a question from Francis Jacobs. What is this, what is the situation in Belarus at the moment? Uh, Lukashenko is backing Putin in his invasion and providing a base for attack uh, is he uh, completely on side with with Russia? And also, what is the situation with regard to the other former, former Soviet republics? They've been quiet. Kazakhstan, as you say, owes uh, Putin uh, for the, his help in the presidential election. But just uh, a short overview of the other the stands and the other post-Soviet republics at the moment, and particularly Belarus, which, of course, is such a close neighbor.
2: Thank you, Francis, for for those questions. Um, I was in touch with friends of mine from Belarus uh, during the last couple of days. So I have a rather accurate picture, I think, from from the ground. Many are leaving Belarus, uh, particularly those working in companies that do trade with the European Union and the United States because of the sanctions which affect Belarus as much as they affect Russia. Um, In particular, actually, there's quite an exodus to Georgia. Um, And uh, there's a lot of fear. I remember during my own interviews in belarus over many years one thing that struck me when i was talking to students was (laughs) the fear of um what would happen if they were engaged in a protest and because all the presidents of the universities are usually nominated actually they're not called president in belarus because the president of 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 belarus doesn't like the term president being used by anybody else um so uh, they tend to be called different things um but they're appointed by the presidential administration and they it's their job to make sure that students stay in line and what happens is if somebody's arrested um they they then are expelled from the university and then of course they're sent into the army as conscripts so it's a very rapid transition from studying for your for your uh, you know modules and and ending up being on the front line in ukraine that instills a lot of fear uh, in young people so this is to, to to paraphrase one well-known person this is not really the the will of the people we're seeing in belarus it's the fear of the people uh there's been an absolute crackdown uh, on dissent in Belarus. And uh, as I said, people are, are leaving. And, and uh, Lukashenko is no longer able to now navigate as he tried to do over the years uh, between the EU and, and, and Putin. Of course, he already had a special relationship with Putin, the so-called gas for kisses. But now he's, he's, his fate is completely tied uh, with Putin, he he he, you know, stands or falls with Putin. He he's, he's now wagered everything along with Putin on this working out, and therefore I think his position is quite vulnerable um, and and is uncertain. And there's no obvious exit strategy uh, for him um, in terms of Kazakhstan and and uh, the stands generally. I mean, I lived in in Central Asia for half a dozen years, so it's it's, it's definitely an old bailiwick of mine and. Uh, they are having a huge I mean, the fact that the ruble has collapsed is having a huge impact in Central Asia, where, of course, so many uh, migrants have, 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 are working in Russia, in Tajikistan, for example, about one in seven. Uh, of the population uh, are migrant workers in Russia. so that has a huge impact on remittances. Um, it, it, it means of course that uh, trade uh, between the two countries is greatly diminished. But in terms of what happened in Kazakhstan two months ago, as you know the, 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 the Russian the, the Kremlin sent troops to shore up the dictatorship uh, in Kazakhstan. and during this war it has been looking for you know, that favor to be repaid. Um, and what's interesting is the Kazakhstan government has not uh, been eager to repay it in any in any way at all, either by uh, you know recognizing the uh, the so-called republics of Luhansk and Donetsk, or by um, uh, military uh, support. And it, it, it demonstrates that, you know, they're they're keeping a very open mind about how this will pan out. Russia is isolated in an unprecedented way. And as I said, it's having a negative impact on Central Asia. And also they're they're not eager to align themselves. And that was also re- evident, by the way, during the General Assembly vote in the United Nations, where Russia could only get the support of Syria, North Korea, Belarus, and Eritrea. Uh, the rest of the world didn't vote with Russia. And that, that included all the Central Asian republics. And indeed, Places like Armenia, which is also in recent times very dependent on Russia because of its role uh, in in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict.
1: Thank you very much, Danica. That's extremely interesting because uh, uh, with uh, we haven't had much information about the other former Soviet republics. So uh, the UN Assembly um, General Assembly resolution was very revealing, uh, <clears throat> which followed on from the uh, the unsuccessful and unsatisfactory uh, Security Council uh, resolution on the same. Uh, Judy, I have a question that's specifically addressed to you, with greetings from the. Um, British ambassador in Ireland, Paul, uh, UK ambassador in Ireland, Paul Johnston, uh, he said it's nice to see you again, and indeed we we all say that. How do you see the spectrum of EU member state views on strategic autonomy uh, evolving in the wake of the invasion, particularly perhaps in terms of Berlin's shift and implications for the Franco-German mm-hmm. dynamic? Mm-hmm. And I also have another question on France, but we'll see if we can get to that. Sure, I'd be very, I'd
0: be very, I'd be very brief. Um nice to see you, Paul. I remember your days in NATO. Okay, um, I think we have to um, call a spade and spade, and at the moment, the idea, the the idea of strategic autonomy is over. Um, as Ben said, if he had had Trump in the White House, it would have been a complete disaster. And actually, uh, Trump was the reason for all this talk about Europe having strategic autonomy. It was a very woolly concept. It was pushed by France in the beginning. Essentially, it was about eventually Europe going its own way in defence, security and intelligence. Well, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because more than ever now, uh, the West and this will include Canada, perhaps Australia as well, Japan, South Korea, I mean they're all on on board for the sanctions, but essentially the transatlantic relationship in NATO has has actually become much stronger. And I dare I, I dare to use the word nimble, but um, it's been quick to relocate to move forces to deploy to the Baltic states and to Romania. France is on board, um, and this is this is actually very important. The second point about strategic autonomy is never welcomed by Poland. It was never welcomed by the Baltic states or some of the Central Europeans because. The idea of strategic autonomy was a fear by these countries that it would weaken NATO, that it would become a competition to NATO, that would actually slowly um, weaken the role that, the, that America played in Europe. And above all, uh, the idea of strategic autonomy boils down not just to defence capabilities and to interoperability, it boils down to the fact of trust. And frankly, the 27 member states, when it comes to security, foreign policy and defense, do not trust each other. And this, this war has actually created a European trust in the United States. For how long this will last, I'm not quite sure, but it certainly put strategic autonomy on the back, on the back burner. However, Germany will certainly take the lead in actually shaping the future defense capabilities and leadership and, and command structures in Europe to actually the benefit of the United States.
1: Thank you, Judy. I was going to move on to Ben uh, to see if um, uh, how you would read uh, the European movements and the Versailles Declaration and the attempt to be much more muscular in terms of European defence within the European Union and allied with NATO, Ben.
3: Thanks, Mary. Just just really quickly, Judy, I don't disagree with the thing you said in terms of where strategic autonomy sits. The only thing I'd say in, in response is Strategic autonomy reminds me a lot of what Partnership for Peace was designed to do. Partnership for Peace was designed as a two-for-one deal. It would provide for people coming closer and joining NATO, but it also provided for Russia to come in, align with NATO and to solve the security problem. Strategic autonomy in my mind has that same ambivalence. And And I do think that its relevance, it could potentially be huge in 30 months time because Europe does need to strengthen the alliance. It does need to work. But we do have those elections to face. And if it goes a particular direction, the United States, Europe could again stand alone, in which case, strategic autonomy comes racing back front and center in terms of Europe's capacity. In terms of, Mary, your, your, your question on, on, on European security architecture, I mean, for me, that boat sailed six months ago. I mean, I think Putin and, 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 his, and his regime have given up on that. They, they, they make demands now in terms of a change European security uh, architecture, which is utterly, utterly untenable. Um, And isn't an architecture of of collective security, it's an architecture of empire and dominance, as Danica was was talking about. Um, So I think we can talk about a new European security architecture, but only after Putin. There's there's no conversation to be had with Putin about security architectures.
1: Thanks very much, Ben. I have a question from somebody who has a a very deep interest uh, in, in the conflict. It's from Therese Healy, who is the Irish ambassador to Ukraine. And she said, how do the speakers assess the evolving policies of countries such as Turkey and China towards the Russian invasion of Ukraine? If I could have a quick comment from each of you, uh, from your perspective, uh, Russia, uh, the, uh, Turkey and China. Uh, Donica, would you like to start off?
2: So the influence of Russia, Turkey and China. Sorry. How do, how
1: do the speakers assess the evolving policies of countries such as Turkey and China towards the Russian invasion of Ukraine?
2: Aha, okay. Well, Turkey is a very interesting one because Turkey and Russia, I think you could describe as frenemies in a way. They they, they have, you know, at various times when it comes to, for example, resisting uh, the European Union and indeed the United States, at times they tend to coalesce. They have a convenience of interest. And then at other times, Turkey is resentful of Russia's role in what it sees as its uh, its own near abroad. So for example, it was very resentful of uh, Russia's intervention in the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia uh, over in Nagorno-Karabakh in 2020, uh, where it more or less came to the rescue of Ar- Armenian forces. Uh, it was very resentful of um, the way Russia intervened in Kazakhstan, which again, Central Asia would be seen as, as a, a sphere of influence uh, for Turkey. And it's been quite uh, open in its support for Ukraine uh, in this conflict, in supplying humanitarian measures, uh, not uh, not only humanitarian assistance, but also drones uh, for the Ukrainian armed forces. So it's actually been... Uh, you might say ahead of the curve in supporting uh ukraine and and that is is noteworthy certainly because as i said they have at times also had a cooperative relationship even even if it's one based on sometimes mutual suspicion erdogan and and putin um and of course china is is of course also very interesting i i think many of us would have said that china was looking at this with interest and not um it, it, it was not dispassionate about the outcome because of course it has its own historical territories or at least what how it perceives it um taiwan uh, which it, it would which is also a democracy which would uh, which china believes uh, should be returned to the fold so i think that how russia is, how the responses the collective response to, to to russia has a bearing on on china's own ambitions uh in the region but china as you know didn't vote. Um, it, it abstained rather in the, um, in the UN Security Council on the issue, it didn't vote with Russia. Um, so I, I think it's been trying to, to sit on the fence on this one, to neither antagonize uh, Russia and Germany, but neither antagonize uh, the West. Uh, in that sense, it's a little bit different, of course, from Turkey, as I said, who have come out rather strongly in favor of Ukraine.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks, Donika. Uh, two interesting countries, and in particular, of course, China uh, has a huge... Uh, Role uh, and and we watch where um, uh, where events will take there. Particularly with the suggestion that Russia has, uh, uh, in fact, I suppose one could say, shown weakness by asking China uh, for for assistance. I don't know if uh, either Judy or Ben would like to comment on that. We have quite a few other questions, but um, I, I'd be very brief.
0: Um, I'd be very brief on China. Um, China has done Putin an enormous favor. By actually saying no to further uh, to further NATO enlargement, this is was an enormous um, signal and present for Putin. And in return, China got long guarantees of energy, which it really needs. Um, this is the first point. China is so um, anti-NATO at the moment, and um, I was speaking with a very uh, a top intelligence person over the weekend, uh, Chinese, who's unbelievably well connected, and he didn't mince his words about China's role, uh, how it sees the West, how Putin is right, mocked Ukraine, uh, although uh, they did abstain at the UN General, uh, at the UN Security Council the General Assembly. But China is bidding its time, and it, it may mediate but then what does this say about the role of the United States and Europe? Can you mediate and deal with European future security architecture, with China mediating itself? So it's 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 a very complicated question, China's real long-term strategy. But one thing is sure, that the closer Russia gets to China, the less influence Russia will actually have.
1: Thank you, Judy. Ben, I don't know if you have any comment on that, uh, but could I just follow up with you, Ben, uh, with a question from Noel Dor, who's the former uh, ambassador to the UK and to the United Nations. Uh, he was Noel was on the Security Council when Ireland was on the United Nations previously, and he is looking forward five years uh, from the dreadful situation uh, where by then Putin may have gone either in large part uh, through failure in Ukraine, um, or um, uh, and he is looking towards a new comprehensive security settlement for Europe, updating Helsinki 1975 and Istanbul 1999. Uh, could I? Could we envisage that and, and how soon might that happen? And I have a question also from Derry Fitzgerald. What would a solution look like at this stage? What would some kind of end solution for this war look like? Or are we looking at a very long uh, drawn out conflict? Ben.
3: Bless us all. I think, I think both, both questions hinge on what happens in Moscow, um, how this war plays out, how it's received by the, by the Russian population, Russian elites. Uh, whether moves are made to disempower or get rid of Putin entirely in which all options you know, are on the table in terms of a resolution and, and new kinds of security structures. Um, in terms of the immediate resolution, I mean my, my own pessimism leads me to suggest that we're, we're looking at an effective uh, uh, crippling of, of the Ukrainian state, an attempted subdivision of the Romanian state, the occupation of a large portion of the Ukrainian state, And based on the evidence we've seen to date, a long, drawn out, bitter and brutal counterinsurgency conflict in Europe, in the the heart of Europe and involving tens and hundreds of thousands.
1: Yeah, that's a very sobering and negative uh, assessment. I have a question uh, about French uh, foreign policy. It's from Marie Luce, Professor of Law at UCD. Uh, What about France? Uh, uh, Marie Lou -Lou says uh, she's very surprised that the foreign policy of the country with the first army in the EU and nuclear dissuasion is barely mentioned. Um, Is this because the country and its president are not really taken seriously? or his moves towards um, uh, discussion and dialogue with, with Putin. Um, I, we had mentioned that the war changed the relationship with Russia, but it also changes and should change the relationship of each EU country with their security and defense policy and with their army. Uh, perhaps I'll uh, come first for a comment, uh, Donica. uh French foreign policy and, uh, put and, um, and President Macron's relationship Uh, There's a feeling that they are not been given uh, the weight of their efforts at the moment. Uh, Is that a a commonly held view?
2: They're not being given the weight, uh, sorry? For
1: the the Macron efforts of dialogue with um, uh, and as would behove uh, a nuclear-powered state, a member of the Security Council, Uh, There's a lot talked about uh, with Germany, and I'll ask Judy too, um, uh, but that uh, certainly this is the um, view of a French uh, citizen, uh, Marie-Louise, professor of law, that uh, France has not really uh, been given uh, much uh, attention in terms of its efforts to um, uh, try to work out, at least to maintain a dialogue.
2: Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, France has been at the forefront of attempts, uh, and not only during this war. Of course, France was an integral part of the Minsk uh, talks and the, the the Normandy format and 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 whatnot. And of course, uh, in 2008, even with the uh, the war in Georgia, I mean, Nicolas Sarkozy uh, was the uh, the leader who uh, negotiated an agreement between Moscow and Tbilisi at that time. So no, the, the French have been definitely active. Uh, with that of course comes uh i guess responsibilities and and indeed criticisms uh, that perhaps uh, macron was uh, and, and and indeed uh, various european powers not just France were perhaps too indulgent uh, of Russia in trying to understand its insecurities and not being perhaps listening as much to the securities of russia's neighbors uh it's 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 an ongoing debate and I don't want to come down on one side or the other but simply to say that certainly those who now that we know what we know and what has happened has happened, I uh, certainly there are, there are more critics who argue that more could have been done or should have been done. Uh, it goes back to the point that uh, Ben Tonner made uh, that that essentially, um, you know, it's essentially since two thousand and fourteen, and 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 Judy of course mentioned about Nord Stream two uh, being completed uh, after two thousand and fourteen. So so there's there's a lot of things that we have to I think reflect on about the mistakes that were made. Uh, and that's not to say, though, because this question comes up all the time, that this could necessarily have been avoided, um, you know, because the, to- the attempts at talks of Macron going to Moscow, they were well-intentioned, uh, and, and um, you know, the, the, the request, and this is happening now, and this is why I'm not particularly optimistic about negotiations right now, that the request that Vladimir Putin was making in advance of this war, were so impossible to meet, I mean, the request he was making, that it seems that they were just simply a pretext to say, well, I I tried diplomacy, and now I'm going to try plan B, which is war. And I think that anybody who therefore tries diplomacy with Vladimir Putin leaves themselves open, as Macron has had, to that accusation that he was naive. Uh, But again, that's, that's a matter of opinion, and perhaps it's unfair.
1: Thank you very much, Donica. Judy, have you a comment? Because uh, be, you look very closely, I'd, I'd be i will be extremely
0: brief. Uh, it's it's interesting Donica's um, answer. Um, Macron, with his team, um, worked incredibly uh, hard and long over the past two years, three years, to understand um, the Kremlin, particularly Putin, um, and. There were mistakes made by French foreign policy that they didn't liaise with uh, the Baltic States or Poland, United States, UK, Germany, they did a little, frankly, Angela Merkel wasn't particularly interested in 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 strengthening the Franco-German, the Franco-German relationship. But Macron's visits to Putin and the telephone calls over the past two months have been absolutely fundamental in changing France's view of Putin. it's it's an appalling realisation because look look at the backdrop of the terrible war on Ukraine. But it's very, very interesting reading the French press and speaking to French diplomats that A, Macron tried, somebody had to try, somebody, uh, Schultz was too inexperienced, somebody who knew uh, Putin personally had to see what's going on in Putin's mind. And after his last phone call and last visit, Macron came back to France saying, he's not interested in a, in, a, in, in a dialogue or solution. So the kind of, I, I use the word very carefully, the kind of innocence that belief that you could talk to Putin is over. And one last point, Macron didn't put a foot wrong over the past four or five months. He liaised with all the Baltic States, with, with Warsaw, with Berlin, with Brussels, with the United States, with the UK, with us, with everybody possible, that this was no freelancer going after Putin. And he has come back deeply disappointed and deeply worried that this is going to be a long drawn out awful war.
1: Thanks, just Judy. One point, yeah. Just
3: one yeah. point, Mary, yeah. just, to, just I to was, I
1: was, Yeah, I was going to come to you anyway, Ben, because yeah, I have sorry. a with you, but go ahead now.
3: Excessive enthusiasm on my part, I apologize. <laughs> yeah. um, no, it's just to extend my Lucia's point in, in terms of in terms of the, the, the strategy of all of this. I mean, obviously, you know, Macron has been has been pushing strategic autonomy, has been pushing a common defense, has been pushing a common defense policy. What we saw in Versailles, you know, again, six weeks ago would have blown anybody's mind. But it does raise the fascinating question and the very difficult question for Ireland: where does a European common defense relate to nuclear deterrence? Now, the French have said in the past, you know, this is a conversation to be had, never taken seriously, but I'm sorry it becomes front and center.
1: Well, Ben, the questions, I had two questions I was going to put to you, and you've already mentioned both of them. Uh, The first one was from Ian Hughes, who's um, Senior Policy Analyst at Science and Technology. Nuclear weapons have primarily been framed as a deterrent against war. Putin is using them as a shield under which to commit unlimited atrocity. What are the implications going forward for nuclear policies? And the other one was from John Bigger. Uh, Is this going to push uh, Europe towards a European defense policy? Ben, could you comment on both of those? I
3: I think to John's question, the answer is probably yes. No question in my mind. The answer to to, to Ian's question is God knows. I mean, genuinely, I mean, it, it throws on our head our understanding of what what Mutual Assured Destruction was meant to provide. It throws on its head all of the the realpolitik that we dealt with, all of the traditional understandings of of what nuclear deterrence meant in a Cold War context. It reverses it and throws it on its head. It's almost as if the possession of nuclear weapons gives you license for anarchy. Um, And I think some very smart people have got to sit down and think some very profound thoughts as to what this means and its implications. And I, again, above my pay grade,
1: Okay, okay. Uh, another question then, uh, it's related to India, uh, which is an interesting. It's from Sulanga Maitra in UCD. Uh, and she said, "What role can we know what it should do? Can India possibly play in this current geographic, geopolitical configuration?" I think that's an interesting one, because India has been looked at uh, very carefully. They uh, abstained in the Security Council debate. The role of India uh, in this situation, Donika, have you? uh, I'm. I know it's a bit beyond your absolute main area, but obviously, you. We are all uh, have uh, a consciousness of what India should do in the situation and the Indian role.
2: I haven't. I have to say a strong opinion on India's role, uh, so it's better that I don't elaborate upon that. Only to say that I understand in Ukraine. That there's a disappointment that India isn't doing more, um, but uh, considering its size, uh, but it's, it's um, But other than that, I wouldn't I wouldn't feel confident enough to comment on it. Right. I have to
3: say I, I have been I have been really really disappointed um, in 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 India on this point. I mean I know people have been talking about for some time about the rise of Hindu nationalism, the link between Hindu nationalism and right wing populism, and some of the similar phenomena we've seen in, in India as in other major democracies. Uh, but India's role really does bemuse me because if India has any long term strategic interest, it is at the defense of stable democracies and the stable of national sovereign and the stability of national sovereignty. And if India won't stand up on this occasion and deal with these questions, frankly, I think, I think that's not a good sign.
1: Yeah, Judy I don't know if you have, thought, I'm in yeah. I mean, German
0: India. I, I've, I've been following India on and off actually, and um, two very quick points. Um, India has done itself enormous damage vis a vis France. France has such a very close uh, strategic security defence relationship with India in terms of exercise, in terms of dealing with the Indo Pacific region. This is just so crucial for Indian stability and the stability of this part of the world. And the fact, the fact that uh, India did abstain because it didn't want to antagonise Russia, it has military agreements also with Russia, it's an enormous. Um, disappointment to the idea of the West and the principles of non-interference. Of course, Italy and um, India has its own territory problems. One other thing which I think um, we should really just say one very important thing. This, the war in Ukraine is, is also about the appalling vacuum in arms control arms control was completely neglected in the late 1990s, and then Trump and the Bush administration walked away from arms control agreements, so did, so did um, Trump, Obama tried to revive arms control, and if we are going to talk about uh, nuclear weapons or what happens to the INF Treaty, we have to go back to some kind of arms control that will create some kind of stable security environment. I don't know when this is going to start, but the sooner the better, because this is this is the crux um, after during and
1: after this war. Yeah, Thank you very much, Judy. I think that's a, a hugely important point. And of course, Ireland, who has uh, been so involved in arms control almost since we joined the UN. Uh, this is an area where I think we feel we can contribute, and even now, uh, as a member of the Security Council, where we will wish to contribute. I have a question for McDonough, uh, who's a former ambassador to the UK, of course, saying, recent events have led to a dramatic change in thinking in Germany, the EU, Ireland, etc. Do the panellists think that there could be any substantive change of thinking in the UK, where Putin intervened in support of Brexit and now... Uh, benefits from it and celebrates it. I, I'm not sure about the latter bit. It's, it's quite controversial, but uh, Ben, do you think um, how are the British coming out of this, this uh, looking at, at the situation in Ukraine? There's a lot of activity, a lot of weapons donated.
3: Yeah, uh, I, think, I think there's been a, a lot of rhetoric um, on the UK side. I think there's some very serious and substantial military support to Ukraine. I think the UK is playing and will continue to play a very strong and a powerful role within 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 a NATO context. Um, but I have to admit that politically, geostrategically, I think Britain has been somewhat on the margins and on the sidelines. Um, The bilateral support, as I say, really important, the support within NATO, really important. Um, And I think that is a a function of of the existing political dynamics within the UK and and the UK's departure from from the EU. But again, coming back to Judy's point, you know, if if NATO centrality becomes much more to the fore, there is a really important role there for for the UK to play. And as I say, there are clearly ambitions, resources, and will on the UK part to to, to play that role. But I would would warn uh, UK interlocutors against overweening rhetoric and under-delivery.
1: Yeah, thanks. Uh, Just on a last point, um, Ben, uh, you mentioned that, uh, and Judy indeed did as well, and Danica, that it will require uh, a changed perspective in all of the EU member states. Uh, Ben, a final word on on the Irish situation. There's been a lot written about Irish neutrality.
3: Um, I think there's been been great clarity um, from government and from opposition parties that we're not neutral on this. Um, and I think we all understand why we could not possibly be neutral on this. I think the question that arises is, is where we go from here. Um, and, and all that, I think there are some tough choices gonna to be presented. I mean, if, as I said, in response to, uh, to, to John's question, you know, there, is, there is swift and solid movement towards a European common defense as opposed to just a common defense policy that requires constitutional change and referendum in this state. Um, and that will be a tough and, and difficult conversation. And it will inevitably be wrapped up in the nature of that common defense and the role of nuclear deterrence within that common defense. And those are really difficult existential questions for the Irish state and very tough choices to be presented to us. And so you know, for having spent 60, 70 years, nobody talking about defense, suddenly we're having a crash course in what defense actually means. And we may be forced to make some very hard and fast decisions very soon.
1: Thanks, Ben. Uh, unfortunately, we have come to the end of our uh, allotted time. I'm really regretful and I have to apologize to all the members um, who are on this call because we have had dozens of questions. Uh, there is huge interest in, in this and in the situation, and it's a reflection of the uh of the attention that everybody is giving to Ukraine. Uh, I have a particular interest in feeling bitterly upset and disappointed as a former ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, and uh, we can just sincerely hope that there might be, as fast as the invasion happened, that there might be just as quickly uh, a solution in sight from whatever talks are going on. But I want to thank uh, the members of the panel, Judy. Um, ben and Donica, most sincerely you've given us uh, all of your information from, from the depth of your considerable knowledge and we're greatly enriched and uh, as I say thank you once more and thank you to all the members who've joined us today bye bye now this podcast is brought to you by the IIEA the Institute of International and European Affairs Join the discussion on iiea.com and access our engaging videos, blogs and podcasts.